and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, Episode 3, Consolidating Power. During the last episode, we looked at the youth of Alexander, up to when his father Philip was assassinated. This time, we shall look at his first few years as King of Macedon, as he consolidates his power in Macedon with the barbarian tribes of the north, and with Greece. Moving the narrative along to the invasion of Persia in 334 BC. But before I get too carried away, we're going to look at Alexander's personality. Alexander was about 20 when he came to power, although he has been overshadowed for these early years by the huge personalities of his parents, he now steps into the spotlight a place he will remain glued to for the rest of his life. As his personality will soon dwarf his parents, and anyone else in the world really, it's worth taking a look into what his personality is. What made Alexander tick? I once saw a bit of a recent film called Troy. You may have heard of it. In it, Achilles, played by Brad Pitt, is talking with his mother about whether he should go to Troy. His mother, played by Julia Christie, tells him if he stays at home, he will live a long and happy life, but he will be forgotten after he died. If he went to Troy, though, he would be remembered forever, but he would not return. He did choose to go to Troy, by the way. I'll just throw that in there, in case anyone is not familiar with the Iliad. This is a great way of summing up how Alexander thought. He wanted fame, he wanted to outdo Achilles, he wanted to be remembered forever. I said last time he was annoyed with his father for winning battles, because it gave Alexander less work to do. Alexander didn't want to have an easy life, ruling a large, rich empire. He wanted a hard life of military glory. For all the reasons of the invasion of Persia, this was as big as any. Alexander was not only inspired by Achilles, he also learned from his mistakes. In the Iliad, Hector, a Trojan, kills Patroclus, Achilles's either best friend, or male lover, or both. Then Achilles, in revenge, kills Hector, and dishonours Hector's body, leading Achilles to be killed. The most famous count being he was killed by an arrow, fired by Paris and guided by Apollo, where it struck his heel. Achilles was killed for dishonouring Hector's body, and ignoring the will of the gods. Alexander then was respectful to the gods, and always wanted them on his side. So we know he was ambitious, competitive, reckless, pious. He was interested in knowledge. I mentioned last week about his love of reading. He was intelligent and logical, aside from him nurtured by Aristotle. We're also told he was quite self-restrained in pleasures of the body, although he loved to drink alcohol. It's quite charming how Plutarch rationalises this, by saying that he loved conversation, and he wasn't actually drinking the alcohol. He was a born leader, who was bigger than life. It's easy to understand why his empire fell apart so quickly after his death. His empire needed an Alexander to hold it together. And when he was gone, 
His generals struggled coming to terms with a world without him. Well, we know basically who we're dealing with here, so back to the narrative. So, the year is 336 BC. Philip has just been assassinated. Pausanias has just been executed by some of Alexander's companions. The army then hailed Alexander as King of Macedon. Alexander would have wanted to carry on where his father left off, and invade Persia. This would have been rather foolish. The army may have held him as king, but that did not stop anyone else from challenging that. There were rivals to the throne within Macedonia, while both the barbarians to the north and the Greeks to the south had by no means accepted the Macedonian yoke and this was as good an opportunity as any to break free. These three problems would have to be dealt with before he could turn his attention to Persia. In dealing with problem one, rivals to the throne, Alexander acted with Machiavellian decisiveness. He ordered his biggest rival for power, Aramnitas IV of Macedon, killed. Aramnitas was the son of King Perdiccas III of Macedon. He was the brother of Philip. When Perdiccas died in 359 BC, Aramnitas was named king, but he was only an infant, and Philip seized the throne. Alexander therefore killed his own cousin. This may have prevented a civil war, as the boy would become a rallying point for opposition, and it was standard practice at the time. So, although it's shocking to our ears, we can't judge him too harshly. Alexander then killed a few Macedonian princes, and, as I said last time, Olympias killed Philip's wife Cleopatra, and her daughter Europa. Alexander killed Cleopatra's father, Attalus, who had led the advanced Macedonian guard into Asia, and was rumoured to be planning to defect to Athens. Arahadus, mentioned earlier, was spared. So, now he had control over his own dominions, he could try and bring former Macedonian subjects under control, the barbarians and the Greeks. Alexander was in quite a tough situation. His advisers saw how difficult it would be to bring both the Greeks and barbarians under control. They said that the best strategy would be to leave the Greeks alone, and not to use force against them while offering concessions to the barbarians. Now, Alexander was an inexperienced 20-year-old, so you may think that he listened to his advisers, and, well, took their advice. <laughs> no, of course not. This is Alexander. He did the other thing, the thing where he looks at the opposition and said, Bring it on. Alexander believed that if he conceded even the slightest, then all his enemies would attack all at once. If he wanted Macedon to maintain its prominence, then he would have to do it the hard way. Alexander mustered 3,000 cavalry and marched them south into Thessaly, which had broken into revolt along with Thebes and Athens once the news of Philip's death reached them. The Thessalines had camped in a pass between Mount Olympus and Mount Ossia. Alexander and his men marched over Mount Ossia, and when the Thessalians found Alexander in their rear, they surrendered. Alexander headed south into Greece, stopping off at Thermopylae to be made leader of the Amthrictionic League. He made his way to Corinth, 
While at Corinth, a meeting of the League of Corinth was held, where the Greek states voted that they should join forces with Alexander for the invasion of Persia, and that Alexander should be made commander-in-chief of the expedition. He would be later named Hegemon, either while at Corinth or after he had left Greece. While at Corinth, one of the more famous of Alexander's anecdotes occurred. If it did occur, there is a reasonable chance it didn't. Many philosophers were at Corinth, and offered their congratulations to Alexander. He loved this, but he was a bit annoyed that one philosopher, Diogenes of Sinope, a city in northern Turkey, ignored him. Alexander eventually went to find Diogenes in person. When he found him lazing around in the sunshine, he walked over and asked him if there was anything he could do for him. Diogenes glanced up at him, and then coolly replied, Yes, you can stand a little to one side, out of my son. Alexander was impressed. It took guts to answer a question like that from a king, and was impressed with his independent mind. The people around Alexander started mocking Diogenes for his response, but Alexander said, You may say what you like, but if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. There are numerous interpretations of this story, that it is a moral story praising Diogenes for not treating Alexander differently for his worldly power, as well as praising Alexander for not wasting Diogenes' time. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. It was while at Corinth that news reached Alexander that the Thracian tribes to the north were in revolt. Alexander's Balkan campaign took place in 335 BC. He first headed into Thrace to bring them back into the Macedonian fold. He defeated the Thracians and continued heading north, briefly crossing the Danube. Having defeated the Thracians, news came of another revolt, this one in Illyria, headed by Clytus, the Dardanian, and King Glaucius of the Tarlanamti. Alexander headed south into Illyria, quickly enough to prevent the two from uniting. Clytus fled into Pelium, a nearby town, and Glaucius came to give support, but then attacked Philotus, who you'll remember is the son of Parmenio. He was on a foraging party. Alexander came to the rescue of Philotas, but then found himself trapped between Glaucius and Clytus, who both had the high ground. Alexander manoeuvred his way out of the situation, and was able to defeat them both and take Pelium, securing the northern border. Then, news reached Alexander that Thebes and Athens were once again in revolt. Alexander headed back down into Greece in September 335 BC. While most Greeks cowered with the arrival of Alexander, Thebes remained stubborn in revolt. Alexander didn't want to attack Thebes, and offered to spare the city if they surrendered their leadership, Phoenix and Frostilis. The Thebans, who obviously had no sense of self-preservation, demanded that Alexander surrender Philotas and Antipater, one of Alexander's most important generals. The Thebans also called for all those who wanted to free Greece to join them. Alexander was not happy. He surrounded Thebes, and although the Thebans fought bravely, he crushed them. 
Thebes was made an example of. A few were spared, the priests, for example, but 6,000 were killed in the battle, and 20,000 were sold into slavery. Greece was stunned. Defeats had happened before, when Athens was defeated in the Sicilian expedition. It was a shock. Cities had been destroyed before, but it all happened so quickly, so easily. Thebes had been the most powerful city in Greece, and now it was nothing. The ancient Greeks were one of the most arrogant nations that there has ever been, believing that they were better than everybody else, and it was a huge blow to their ego to have the most powerful city destroyed by mere Macedonians, who were, in the eyes of the Greeks, nothing better than semi-barbarians themselves living on the edge of the civilised world. Any resistance to Alexander collapsed, with remarkable speed. Cities sent delegations to Alexander, begging for forgiveness. And once Theban refugees began arriving at Athens, they knew Alexander was going to crush them too. They began moving everything that could be moved from the countryside into the city, and sent a delegation congratulating Alexander on his victories in the north, and over those despicable Thebans. Expecting the worst, the Athenians were thrilled when Alexander pardoned them. He wanted them to hand some people over, but this was just fine with Athens. Alexander was said to regret the treatment of Thebes later in life, but it certainly did the job. With the exception of Sparta, Greece was firmly under Alexander's control. Alexander was only 21, and he had successfully secured his own political position within Macedon, and brought the northern barbarians and Greece under Macedonian control within two years. Now it was time to invade Persia. Join me next time as we launch Alexander's invasion of Persia, one of the most famous campaigns in history. Remember, you can visit us online by visiting the website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Facebook at the History of Podcast Facebook page, or you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod. Thank you to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the programme.